the first food that I fed my daughter was a piece of steak. We gave her a piece of steak and just let her suck out the juices because that is what the body really needs at six months of age. Hey everyone, I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today I'm sitting down with perinatal and pediatric naturopathic doctor, Dr. Ari Calhoun. Using her research background, Dr. Calhoun turns complex information into tangible steps for patients, parents, and children alike. She believes in a comprehensive multi-system approach, which includes exploration of environmental toxicity, gut health, nutrient balance, underlying infections, and prenatal and early life environment. She is the founder of Kith and Kin Wellness, a private naturopathic medical practice in San Diego, where she has helped patients and their children struggling with infertility, behavioral issues such as ADHD, anxiety, sensory processing disorder, and speech therapy. Before we get into it, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm great. It's so good to be on here. No kidding. It's so good to chat with you again. Yeah. So for those listening, we have actually consulted on some stuff for my own kids and I was just so impressed. I feel like I've talked to a plethora of functional medicine MDs and naturopathic doctors and MDs. And I am very rarely walking away from an appointment being like, damn, that chick knows her shit. And after (laughs) I talked to you, I was like, she has to come on the podcast. Like she's amazing. So I'm so excited to have you here. Um, That's so sweet of you to say. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just give everyone listening a background on like, how did you get into naturopathic medicine in the first place and just medicine in general? Like what's your story and how did you end up specializing kind of where you specialize now? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So, um, you know, I've always been interested in health. I think even from a very young age, I took an interest in cooking and, and just how to use nutrition for health. I was a competitive runner in uh, high school and college. And really, once I went into college, I started suffering with a number of health conditions and I developed my autoimmune disorder. And so I had already kind of had this understanding that I wanted to go somewhere into the healthcare field. I was studying at that time both exercise physiology and clinical nutrition therapy. Um, as a dual major, and I was planning on going to traditional allopathic medical school. And during that time, and kind of just struggling with my own illness, I became really disillusioned with the whole healthcare system, because I was just getting shuttled from doctor to doctor and put on various medications that were interacting with one another. And I really didn't feel as though I was getting to the root of the issue. So at that time, I decided, you know what, I don't want to go to medical school, because I don't like the way that I see medicine being practiced, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was living in Syracuse, New York at the time. That's where I was going to school. And naturopathic medicine is really not a thing in the East Coast, or I would say it's less known. So I had never heard of naturopathic medicine. Yeah, like all, there's like what, six schools in the, I think all yes, of them. Yes, it's very world. small. Yeah. yeah. So there's one in Connecticut, actually. Okay. Um, and there's one in Chicago, but they're, this, they're smaller. So the main schools are all on the West Coast. Yeah. And that's where doctors tend to practice because licensing is very different state to state. So Mm -hmm. I had never heard of naturopathic medicine. And I went to my advisor and just let her know, like, I don't know what I want to do. I know I want to take aspects of my, you know, exercise physiology background and my nutrition background. Tell me what I should do. And she's like, you should really sit down and explore naturopathic medicine. So I did. And I spent like, I, it was like a rabbit hole. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this career has literally been crafted for me. This is exactly what I want to do. I still did not know much about it. 
And, but I was like, I, I knew I wanted to do that. So I just decided I put all my eggs in that basket and I applied and went to naturopathic medical school and Where learned a lot. Did you go to Bastyr? I, I did. I went to Bastyr. Mm-hmm. I applied to Bastyr. Like I wanted did to be you? a naturopathic doctor way back in the day before I met Mark and before Primal Kitchen. And then I just like, it's never- a lot. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's very cool. Okay. So that's how I got into naturopathic medicine. And, um, you know, I think really throughout that time period, there's still a lot of exploration in terms of like what specialty I uh, really wanted to go down and figuring that out. I've always been interested in complex chronic illness um, because I like to put together puzzle pieces. So I have a background in research and I just, I like that aspect of digging. And so I, that's all I knew though. And that's kind of, I started out in a very generalized practice manner. I was working a part of a practice that really specialized in brain and mental health. And my father's actually a psychologist. So I've always been interested in mental health. Um, I have a personal history of anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. So I have my own kind of, um, you know, personal history there that got me interested as well. And I was the only provider at the practice who saw pediatrics who saw children. So I started by seeing children who came in for anxiety, who came in for eating disorders, who came in for behavioral disorders. And then that just kind of catapulted into other neurodevelopment disorders. Where was this practice? That was in Encinitas, California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh And so from there, I really, um, you know, I started How did you end up though in California. Did you go to the best year San Diego campus? Or I did. I went to San Diego. Uh-huh. So then you just fell into San Diego and stayed there or what? Well, I met my husband and we had a baby and yes. And so we, we stayed here. And so I, it was funny. I never thought I'd stay in California. I always thought I'd move back to the East coast, but, um, plans change. Yeah, and so this is great. I mean, yeah, it is. And it's a great place to have a, you know, naturopathic medical practice. Totally. So yeah. And, um, really that just led me down into this road of autism. And I remember going to like one of my first autism conferences and just being blown away um, with first off the prevalence of autism and how much we really do understand about the condition, but how few providers there are to really communicate and, and support this mission. And I just felt really called to this population And I mean, just a side note, the prevalence of autism, actually, uh, the CDC just put out a new number yesterday. So it's now one in 44 kids in the United States are diagnosed with autism. It's one in 36 in California, which is astonishing. Um, And that is an incredible leap from the early 2000s. Why is it higher in California? You know, we don't know exactly. Part of it could just be just resources for diagnosis. And I think that's what a lot of people um, point to. But I think also agriculture is huge here as well as air pollution. You know, one of the things that we know about um, as a risk factor, especially as an exposure in pregnancy is is air pollution. And so there's probably a number of different factors coinciding. Um, But, um, you know, since now, you know, this, I would say right now, my real focus is supporting families, not only who have had a diagnosis of a neurodevelopment or neuropsychiatric disorder, but kind of coming back and really supporting families prior to pregnancy and during pregnancy, because if we hope to reverse this, you know, this exponential rise in this trajectory of where autism or other neurodevelopment disorders are going, we really have to start acting proactively. 
And so that's what I'm doing now. And I, and I love it. And, um, you know, it's just very rewarding. So would you like, what percent of your practice is like working with, with autism or yeah. with AD, with neuro, I would say with neurodevelopment or neuropsychiatric disorders, probably hmm, 70% crazy of my wow. practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't, I thought it was one in 54, one in 44. Crazy. It just changed. Yeah. So 2016 yeah. was one in 54. Okay. So I am so curious. I know I've asked you this. I just like, where is this autism coming from and why, Yeah. what is causing this epidemic really? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what I really emphasize is a lot of people will point back to criteria changes or we're getting more, um, you know, just sophisticated in our diagnosis. And I I don't think that there's, for sure, we are understanding how to catch kids earlier, but there's no way that that accounts for this exponential rise. And so I really work on and focus on like what has changed in our environment over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, really. Um, And if you go back in history, you know, even in the early 1900s, there was no such thing as autism. We were starting to see little signs of it, but it was very peculiar. And if you go back in like, you know, old reports from psychologists or psychiatrists that were trying to understand these changes, they don't even know how to categorize it. And so that's drastically different than it is today. And I really do look at, you know, our environment. So that's changes from the toxicity, what foods we're eating and nutrition, you know, as you know, our food has just become increasingly more um, malnourished over time with the changes that we've made in, in, you know, subsidizing crops and GMO crops and spraying crops and what have you, and just like the processing that goes into foods. Um, But environmental toxins, we've been toxicity and the number of different types of chemicals that we put out has drastically increased. And we're starting to make improvements now. I think we're starting to improve our regulations, but we have big changes on that regard. I think, you know, our just uh, electronics, the way that blue light, EMFs, other things will dysregulate our whole sleep pattern. That's another factor. Um, more parents are going through fertility measures, which changes certain risk factors. So there's just, there are so many, this is multifactorial. And that's really what I focus on with parents. We will never find a singular cause to autism or ADHD or any of these conditions because they take one genetic susceptibility. So you could have two children exposed to the same exact risk factors and one child will develop a neurodevelopment disorder and another child won't. And that's based on their genetics and how susceptible their genetics are to that particular risk. Um, And then it's usually more than one. I mean, rarely will we find a child who comes in who had, um, you know, lack of oxygen during their birth that then causes a neurodevelopment disorder. The majority of times there's these subtle factors that will lead up to, you know, a kind of a developmental disorder or a dysfunction in the brain that we see. Yeah. That's so it's interesting. I remember there was this study I was reading at like an Amish communities. There's like very low rates of autism and they had discovered like some in two communities. And then I'm going to totally butcher this. Maybe you know which study I'm talking about, but then they had found there, there was actually some some instances of autism in, in certain communities and that they had mapped them. And those communities were super close to like, I don't know, like uh, some sort of 
huge environmental pollutant. And they were actually like tying it maybe to like lead in the, I don't know if yeah. lead was it, but something in the ground sure. or in the environment versus like whatever. But, but yeah, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. Well, absolutely. I mean, like autism rates in developed countries are a lot higher than, you know, in other undeveloped countries or in countries that have a, um, you know, just more old school approach to, to life. And we see this even in like community aspects, um, you know, over in Eastern European countries that may have lifestyles that like choose to live in a way that kind of is a little bit more primitive, their autism rates and rates of other infectious diseases. So that's the other thing, you know, with autism, we also see higher rates of autoimmunity and eczema and higher rates of digestive conditions, higher rates of seizures. And all of these are chronic conditions in children. Um, and so um, all of these chronic conditions are less in those that live and lead that more primitive lifestyle. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah, I can really see. a product of this world. Yeah. Now there was another recent study that came out linking like Tylenol to mm-hmm. autism recently. What's up with that? Yeah. I mean, Tylenol is something that's been studied for such a long time. I'm so glad that they finally put out that position statement, just urging moms to be really considerate about their use in pregnancy. I wish we did the same in early childhood as well. So what we know about Tylenol is that there's some direct impacts on the brain with Tylenol. The other thing we know is that Tylenol is seen as a toxin by our body and our body has to metabolize that toxin with a antioxidant called glutathione. Um, So the number one, you know, thing is Tylenol can be directly toxic. Um, And we know this from a liver standpoint, we have over, uh, you know, 300,000 hospitalizations in the US each year from Tylenol overdose. And we also know that, you know, while our body, even if it's on a lower level, so it doesn't produce toxicity per se, and doesn't cause hospitalization, um, it can deplete our body of the main antioxidants that is metabolizing other toxins in our environment. So I think there's, you know, multifactorial components of Tylenol, but we've seen that Tylenol use in pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of neurodevelopment disorders and some endocrine disorders too. So tied to like female reproductive and male reproductive changes and alterations, but also some of those same things are seen in early childhood use. And it's really, you know, what I urge parents and try to like comfort them in is that it is not the occasional use. So if we are using it in pregnancy, you know, three times for a migraine headache, okay, that is okay. But if we are using it and not really understanding and realizing that there's some potential dangers on a daily basis to take care of aches and pains, that's where it becomes a problem. And so, you know, I think this is the unfortunate thing about working in this field is that Almost, you know, we could name so many exposures, so many medications, foods, um, you know, what have you that are potential risks for autism or potential risks for, you know, some other sorts of like schizophrenia. Yeah. However, it's all about the quantity. It's uh, the frequency of exposure. And it's about what are the other factors that you're exposed to alongside of that. So I love to educate parents. I think it's really important that we know about these potential risks, but I don't want to become so hyper-focused on them that we live our entire life, you know, anxious Um, and instead really focus on, okay, what can we do to potentially mitigate that risk? When is an appropriate time to use Tylenol during pregnancy or in early childhood? When is it not appropriate? And then if we have to use it, how can we potentially, you know, mitigate the risks associated with that? Yeah. 
Speaking of migraines, Tylenol or yeah. Supertriptan pregnant, what do you think is safer? Imitrex. You know, I have not looked into Imitrex a ton and from a neurodevelopment standpoint. Yeah. What I will do, actually, I think that there's so many nutrients that I find to be so effective. Migraines in pregnancy is very common. My um, favorite kind of protocol for that is using, and this is, there's pretty good literature around this, but magnesium, CoQ10, riboflavin, and B6, those, I would say, in my clinical experience, 80% of the time work. And And then we'll throw as abortive or as preventative? Preventative. Now, it's a little bit more, you know, and so this is less for the mom who has a migraine on, you know, three times during her pregnancy, we're not going to put her on all those nutrients, but if someone's having frequent migraines, that is something I'll do. Um, otherwise if you're having a migraine three times with your pregnancy, if you need to take a Tylenol, that's three times. Um, so, and then also maybe a little caffeine. And I know that this is super and hugely controversial, but I think that, you know, caffeine overall is less of a risk than Tylenol. Yeah. Okay. So I just have like so many questions. This is all yeah. this is so fascinating. So, um, I guess, but let's back it up before we get like really into it. Cause I feel like it starts with like this preconception phase and like fertility. So you do, that is like part of your practice, right? It's helping people with fertility if they're. Yeah. I used to work really strict. I mean, that was another thing that I did a lot of infertility and, um, Yeah. And then I really realized that, you know, we can't stop at getting someone pregnant. (laughs) That's really only a very small portion of this. Once they are pregnant, um, likely because they were having difficulty pregnant, getting pregnant, they may have other risk factors that would pose risk to the child's health and development. So we want to continue that. So yes. And then you mentioned like some factors in autism, like fertility drugs and all these kind of things we're using. Like, is there anything people can do if you have to go that route or are there, you know, are there other options? I mean, what's your suggestion? 100%. I mean, like this is super uh, broad and obviously very individual to the, the very individual to that person. Um, I think always, you know, as naturopathic doctors, we think about, okay, what is keeping you from getting pregnant? And is there some underlying health condition that we want to address first? Because that is what we see, you know, whether it be autoimmunity or a hyperinflammatory, any, there's a number of health conditions that are associated with infertility that are then going to also be associated with autism. And so if we can correct that underlying health condition, you might get pregnant and you also might have a lower risk of, you know, some form of health condition in your, your, um, offspring. So there's, we could talk about that from a number of things. Got it. Once we are going down that again, I don't hyper-focus on if we're using IVF or if we're using, uh, you know, Lomid or-, Lomid or other things. I mean, there's, th- we don't know. I'll say that Clomid is really interesting um, because of the way that it changes hormones. And so it can increase testosterone levels. And there's some research to show that potentially higher testosterone in women is linked with an increased risk. So, but again, like the women who are also using Clomid are also typically, I mean, I mean, they might be struggling with PCOS. They might already have that higher testosterone level. So I would say it's a little murky. murky. I would say I took Clomid and then used an IUI to get pregnant with our first. Yeah, no, I think like some of the things that there's still a lot of murky research. I think the main thing is if we are going down IVF, we're still trying to optimize egg quality ahead of time. 
right? So we're still doing all the things from a preconception standpoint to get the most optimal egg prior to conception. Well, so when I work with someone pre, I love getting people prior to conception because that's the time that we can really focus on detoxification and identificate, identifying what toxins we're potentially exposed to. So I did this even with myself. I mean, we weren't having fertility struggles, but I really wanted to understand what are the toxins within my environment. And I was shocked because I really, you know, try to lead a very non-toxic lifestyle. So when I came back with extremely high levels of phthalates and BPI, did you do like a a hair test or what are we talking about? A urine test. So my favorite is urine test. And there's two companies that I use. Um, One is called uh, vibrant America. And that's my probably preferred. And then my set, the second one I use is great plains and vibrant America right now, you have to have it through a physician that may change here soon, but right now it has to be through a physician. And then for, um, great plains, you can actually order this yourself if you were interested in it. Okay. So you did this and yours came back high in BPA and phthalates, which are both associated with neurodevelopment disorders and neuropsychiatric issues. And, you know, we live, I don't, drink out of plastic bottles, you know, the common things we don't eat canned foods. And so it was really peculiar to me. And I had to do a lot of digging and a lot of work. And some of this comes back to like, what it's not even about you're being exposed to excessive amounts, but it can also be about what does your body have difficulty metabolizing? Uh So look and see like, you know, some of these are going down the estrogen metabolite pathway. So if you're having issues with estrogen metabolites, you might also, or estrogen dominant syndromes, you might also have some issues metabolizing these xenoestrogens in your environment, or you might, that might lead to us thinking that there might be some gut issues and it might be, you might be reabsorbing things. So it was a lot of work and it took a lot of months to try to get that down. Um, but that test and then do it again before you, mm -hmm. Oh, and you were able to, I was honestly, and this is where I have sympathy for parents because I was able to get my BPA totally down within reference rates. I was able to get my phthalates down like much, much, much improvement. It was still higher than where I would like. And And did you do that through detox or did you do that through lifestyle change? I would say both. I mean, we did an environmental assessment through the house. Um, you know, we were a little nutty and over. I know. I love this. This is great. I want to know what the nutty people (laughs) You know, we wanted to, I really was, didn't understand where it was coming from. So what did you you hire to come to an environmental assessment? What does that even look like? Well, I had, I mean, this was a little different because the BPA and phthalates aren't in the air, but I did have a air assessment done through a company called, uh, well-designed studios. Okay. And I'm so everyone knows 37 weeks pregnant. So if I like blank on this, I'll get you the exact notes. But I think that well-designed studios is who it was from, Um, or well-built labs. I think she has two companies, but I will I will make sure I get you the link for this. Okay. So they do an air assessment, and we you know made sure that essentially like our air was clean. Um, And then we also she looked around the house, so she did a total assessment of the house, looking at the flooring, looking at blinds, looking at rugs, looking at, you know, everything, signs of mold, our kitchen, what could be potentially causing any sort of elevations and toxins. So we did that. And I did a lot of sauna work. I did a lot of work on my gut. And ultimately, really, when I look at these toxicity panels, you know, we can, I think we really, um, we make good and bad, like we make toxin toxicity so basic. And then we say like, okay, this is how you 
detox. <laughs> and, but we can be a lot more individualized and, and specific if we know which toxin we're trying to metabolize yeah, because they go down completely different pathways. So mm -hmm. I knew the toxins I was tied in. I knew which pathway, I knew how they were metabolized in the body. So then I could pick particular supplements that helped those toxins metabolize more quickly. But if you're pregnant, you kind of like shouldn't go down the path because don't you not so, want to yeah. So this is the thing that I think is interesting. I think toxicity assessment from a testing standpoint can still be extremely valuable because 75% of the treatment is just eliminating the exposure. So if you can understand that you are being exposed, then you can understand how to, how to eliminate that exposure. We don't like to actively detox parent, like moms who are pregnant now, yeah, but there's suggesting it or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Or like, I'll just give you another example, personal example. And this is again, where I really try um, to have parents not freak out about their exposures. Cause there's always something you can do. So we found out that there was lead in our house. And while I was pregnant, second trimester, now of all the chemicals and all the toxins out there that we know are associated with <laughs> neurodevelopment issues, lead is among the top now. And so instead of freaking out about it, of course, I was like, not happy to find this. But the thing about knowing is that then you can take action. So we had immediate remediation. Um, and then we also there are a couple things that I know. So I know something like N acetylcysteine is helpful for pulling the lead out of blood. So the thing is, if it's circulating in your blood, you want to get it out, you just don't want to pull it out of your tissues. So where lead hides, hides is in the bones. So I don't want to hypermetabolize my bones. And they've actually shown that higher amounts of calcium and vitamin D in pregnancy can keep your bones stable. So you're not releasing lead because when we get into our third trimester in pregnancy, we are often leaching things from our bones because third trimester is when nutrient deficiencies really start to set in. And so if calcium, like our body keeps calcium really tightly regulated, if calcium drops, we will pull from our bones, we will pull from our teeth. And that's where the lead is, we do not want that. So you know, there were ways that even though um, I can't like, do chelation therapy and take this out of my bones, I can at least keep it in my bones and keep whatever's in my bloodstream help that metabolize out. Does yeah. that kind of make sense? So there's yeah. still ways to support the body in elimination without necessarily active evo like actively evoking toxins from the tissues. Got it. Wow. I'm totally, yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. So interesting. So um, what other things like? Yeah. So I mean, other things in the preconception standpoint, I mean, I look at egg quality parameters and that gives me an indication of like, should we support egg quality any further? Cause that tells us about the DNA and kind of like the chromosomes and um, more genetic errors. We look at, but environmental, honestly, environmental assessment is one of my biggest, biggest areas that I focus on immune issues. So if someone has, a, I mean, autoimmunity and eczema, um, any sort of hyperinflammatory state poses a potential risk for neurodevelopment disorders, stress, um, any anxiety, there's certain medications. So a lot of individuals with anxiety or depression, maybe on an SSRI, um, there, you know, it's a fine balance here, because we do not want moms to become destabilized from a mental emotional standpoint. We also know that SSRIs carry some risk going into pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So what I really work on with parents is how can we get them to the lowest dose possible, support them in other ways. And again, look at those root causes, what's leading to that depression, um, and really support that. 
and so that we can get them down on the lowest dose possible or off if we're able to, and still keep them emotionally stable. Um, gut health is huge. I mean, we really, we used to think that the amniotic fluid was sterile. And so really, you know, it was just that when baby passes through the vaginal canal, that's when they're colonized. Right. We now know that they're starting that colonization process while in pregnancy. So yeah. I really try to do as much gut work prior to pregnancy as possible. And then you can continue that throughout pregnancy. Um, but our gut health really sets the stage for our, our immunity and, you know, uh, many other factors. So if we can, you know, we don't just pass on our good bacteria. And this is something that, you know, I had to kind of learn the hard way with my daughter. My gut was not in a good state when I had my daughter and she has gut issues. That being she was vaginal birth, breastfed through three years of age, you know, no antibiotics, but I didn't pass on the best bugs. Like you, we pass on everything in there. And so um, really just focusing on how we can optimize that flora prior to, you know, prior to pregnancy, but definitely prior to birth. Yeah. And like probiotics or is there anything else? Probiotics diet? Yeah. Well, I think diet is huge. I mean, honestly, probiotics is such a small portion of it. Um, it's what we feed those bugs. So we can put bugs in there. They're not going to live unless we're feeding them the right things. So it's really coming back to those, the fruit, the vegetables, um, what is going to resistant starches, what's going to feed these bugs. Interesting. Okay. I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating. Okay. So I feel like that's good on the preconception phase. Yeah. So the baby's here. Okay. So okay. the baby's here and like, you know, mom, we've got some developmental delays. Like at what point does an autism, I feel like they've gotten earlier with autism diagnoses, haven't they? Like it used to be. They have. Yeah. It's prob- now they'll die. I mean, earliest that I usually see is 18 months and I don't do diagnoses in my practice. I mean, we could from a primitive section, but I really do rely on referrals for that to go through the full developmental evaluation. And so when people are coming to me, um, there are either signs that we have some delays and we can intervene early. I mean, I actually think the only other thing that I would really focus on in pregnancy is nutrient levels. Um, I think, and I'm going to provide a resource for your, so one of the things, you know, just one of the things that I do outside of seeing um, patients in my practice is I am a, a consultant and a formula, formulary advisor for a company called Needed. And so for the past three and a half years, have been researching prenatal nutrients and um, we've developed a prenatal uh, that I really honestly do believe is the best on the <laughs> line for a number of reasons. But the reason, you know, I never really considered nutrient deficiencies to be that significant until I evaluated the research. And it is quite a significant difference. I mean, I think if we have the the biggest time to intervene in pregnancy, so we have the preconception standpoint, we want to detox as much as possible, we want to get as healthy as possible, then throughout pregnancy, we really have to nourish this baby, like we are creating an environment, obviously, we want to keep toxicity low. But the primary goal throughout pregnancy is really nourishment. And so the main nutrients that I see as important are one, of course, we want enough folate prior to pregnancy. So the two most important nutrients for first trimester are going to be folate and choline. So folate is going to be, you know, whole grains, all of our leafy vegetables, um, and then our prenatal, 
choline is a lot more difficult. So choline has to come from pretty much animal products. And rarely are women meeting that their actual needs for choline. Both of these are important for neurodevelopment, but then choline goes on and becomes important throughout the pregnancy. We see that it actually like changes the development of the hippocampus, which is the memory section. And it mitigates the risk of a lot of different things that we know are potential risks for a developing brain, like infection, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, marijuana. Um, There's a number of studies that showing that higher amounts of choline are protective for things that could be uh, risks to the developing brain. And the only like the main, main source is eggs. So if a woman is eating like four eggs a day, she's meeting her needs. But if you're not eating four eggs a day, it's pretty, it's difficult. So for someone like myself, I can't eat eggs um, because I have some sensitivities to them or I can't eat very many of them. I have have an egg allergy. Yeah. Oh, you have an egg allergy. So yeah. So you can get it through animal products. Um, but our vegetarians and vegans are going to need to supplement and animal products, even then it's still quite difficult. So choline is so protective for the brain, so helpful. And so that's one that I really emphasize. Iron is another one and iron is increasingly important as we go through our pregnancy. So third trimester is the most important. And then the first year of life. So there's a lot of things that we can do during that time period. Um, we want to be monitoring our iron. We don't want to just be looking at a CBC. We want to be looking at a ferritin level, which kind of shows us um, iron storage. And we can do other things to help that iron go into baby, like delayed cord clamping has been shown to improve iron levels in baby, but also neurodevelopment status. So iron is huge. We want to be feeding our babies iron at six months of age. You know, I think kind of, and I know I'm jumping around here, but while we're on the iron thing, the first food that I fed my daughter was a piece of steak. We gave her a piece of steak and just let her suck out the juices because that is what the body really needs at six months of age. In the beginning, breast milk has some iron in it, but over time it declines and baby's needs still remain quite high. Our first with my first was like a baby liver pate. Perfect. I love liver. Liver is like, if you can do liver. Yes, I know. It's so funny. I mean, um, my husband's a bow hunter. And so he saves the livers of his animals and we eat them only because I think we should be eating them, not because I enjoy it. But my daughter, she loves liver. And it's so funny how she'll devour it. And some of our kids will, you know, devour the things that we (laughs) can't even... There's barely companies now like Force in Nature is making yeah. like a, I used to get it at the farmer's market in LA, but um, they had Diamond Mountain Ranch. He would have um, like a beef boost, he called it. So it was like ground beef, but he'd grind in the organ meats. And I'm like, why every ground beef should have this in it? This is like yeah. all these things that are like so hard for us to eat, but we should all be eating. So anyway, I digress. Okay. No, a hundred percent. So and to, iron, yeah. Your, yeah. your regular like OB will do just nutrient level testing, right? I mean, some of this, yeah. There's some things like another one is iodine. And I think for your population and like just the health population in general, it's another one to keep in mind because, you know, a lot of us aren't eating iodized salt. We're eating sea salt, which is all yeah. your other minerals, but it doesn't contain iodine. And so unless you're eating massive amounts of seaweed or seafood, which a lot of women are kind of avoiding seafood in pregnancy, yeah. we're at risk of an, a mild iodine deficiency. And we know that that impacts baby's brain. And that's really, again, I would say that kind of goes with choline and folate and is it's most important in first trimester. So we want to be um, ensuring that our prenatal has enough iodine. It's yeah. meaning the RDA. 
Um, and that one can be tested. So, you know, iron can be tested. Iodine yeah. can be tested. Vitamin D is another one that I recommend being tested. Um, vitamin D has definitely been um, kind of a hot one in the pregnancy world, but neurodevelopment world as well. And it really, one of the main benefits is that it prevents premature labor. Oh, crazy. And we know that like the, the most critical time for like brain development and maturation to occur is in the third trimester. We want to cook those babies as long as possible. We want them to stay in mom. We do not want them to go, coming early. And so we want to prevent premature labor at all costs. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So the baby's here. We're having, yes. you know, where, when can you intervene? What can you do? Yeah. What's most impactful? Like, sure. how do you navigate this if you're like yeah. a mom who's facing a potential, you know, autism diagnosis? So the first thing I just say is like when the first six months, it's really about, you know, breastfeeding if possible. And if it's not possible, there's lots of good formulas out there. So, um, you know, we can do that as well and supporting their gut health in other ways. I don't put every baby on a probiotic or I think every baby needs vitamin D, um, unless they're sitting out in the sun or mom is taking sufficient amounts of vitamin D. So essentially I need mom to be taking at least 6,500 IU a day in order for baby not to be taking vitamin D okay. if they're breastfed. Um, but basic stuff, it's really what I focus on again is your, if you are breastfeeding, your breast milk is con a conditionally perfect food. That means it's only as nutritious as what you are giving yourself. So this is a time that moms will often stop their prenatals, not a time to stop your prenatal. A lot of your nutrient needs actually increase during yeah. the time of lactation. Um, and it's, to me, during this time, um, we're watching for those early signs. We're trying to minimize any use of Tylenol. What are the early signs? I mean, motor, mostly motor. So if the child's not turning on time, if they're not engaging, if they're not looking at you, um, those are some of more of the earlier signs if they are unable to lift their, their neck. So it's motor development, mostly in those first couple months. After six months of age is when you can do more intervention. So that's when I start supplements. Um, well, I'll, going back, you can start something like a DHA supplement. So the other important nutrient throughout pregnancy and through the first two years of life is um, DHA, which is one of those omega-3s. Yeah. EPA is more anti-inflammatory. DHA is really important for brain health. So you could start an early DHA supplement with the baby. Um or just make sure that mom is taking, if she's breastfeeding, taking enough DHA or the formula has DHA in it. Yeah. All of those are fine. I mean, honestly, some of the DHA supplements for infants are quite vile and difficult to get like with compliance. So I usually will supplement mom. Yeah. There's this. like Nordic Naturals has a, um, yes. it's like, they call it a gummy, but it's not a gummy. Do you know which supplement I'm talking about? It's like, um, it's like, uh, it's almost like a jello shot. You pop it out of a little thing. Oh. And my kids are like obsessed, obsessed with it. For this thing. It's, <laughs> it's very interesting. I don't know that one. It's, I, know. I hate the gummies. Like, I don't want the cavities. We're not that good at brushing our teeth around here. Like we try, but two toddlers sure. get it. But this thing is like, it's like a jello shot. Nothing gets stuck in your teeth. There's no sugar. It's like literally like a jello shot of omegas. You got to check it out. I'll have to check that out. I haven't the format because like they beg for it. Like my kids do. And I was really historically, like I never take it because it makes me burp and I, uh, but then I just like, I eat, like I eat them too. I just take it extra amounts. Kids, yeah. Again, like they like things like yeah. they like those fishy okay. oil stuff. Okay. Um, so, and then what else are you 
What else? I mean, there's a couple of good products. I don't think every child needs this. This is the thing. I think every child should be thinking about where their DHA source, where their okay, general but what iron if you think is. You have autism. Okay. So then, yeah. Have? So like choline would be another big one. You know, choline okay. needs are really important in the first year of life. And um, so choline and DHA, vitamin D are probably some of my top ones. Okay. Um, to support brain development and then making sure their iron levels are up and stable. So the pediatrician usually starts checking for this around nine months of age. Um, they may check for it earlier, also checking for lead. So, um, pediatricians typically check for this around 12 months of age, but I think that every parent, especially if you're on the East coast, cause East coast is in Northeast, um, much higher in lead. We want to be looking at our house and, you know, our paint, our windowsills, um, for, for lead. And so those are kind of the initial thing and just environmental toxins in general. We don't all need the most like non-toxic nursery, but we can prioritize those things that our children are spending the most amount of time on. So things like car seats, their mattresses, if we can get them without flame retardants, then I really prefer to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we, even like used cribs, like if you can get a crib from someone else, like it's 100%, off. Cast, you know, 100%. Someone else's house, but I mean, better than, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we don't need all organic clothing, but if you can get hand-me-downs, yeah, then do right. So, um, all of those things are, are helpful. Um, and then yeah, starting at six months, it's about, you can start supplements, but a lot of it is what foods you're introducing. So I think choline great thing is egg yolks. Um, iron, you know, different types of meats or liver pate is incredible for, instead of giving them fish oil, give them wild caught salmon. And then you're hitting all those main nutrients through food versus through a supplement. Um, and many kids, if you initiate those foods, they'll develop the palate for it. If you wait and initiate them later, it's a much harder sell. Yeah. So and are you like doing diagnostic testing with kids who are, <laughs> is there any detox? Are you like, yeah. so like I mean, how much can you actually do like at 18 months, even like how much can 18, you do? 18 months? You can do quite a bit. Um, I will have a lot of my 18 month year olds have a potentially they have a sibling with autism. And so the parents are a little bit more proactive. I'll say like, in my practice, I tell parents, I don't care about the diagnosis because the diagnosis is just a collection of symptoms. And many of these children will be diagnosed and they'll be, they won't meet diagnostic criteria once we're done. So I don't care so much about the diagnosis. The helpful thing about the diagnosis is that what the diagnosis does is it makes parents a little bit more vigilant in their actions. So they're more proactive and it helps qualify them for services that they may not otherwise receive. So that's, what's helpful about it. But if we have family predisposition and we see some early signs, then we want to intervene as early as possible. So I'm looking at toxicity. I'm looking at gut, underlying gut um, disorders. We look at something called mitochondrial function. So 80% or more of children on the spectrum have mitochondrial imbalances and mitochondria are the powerhouse of your cells. They are what produce energy. So they, and they're densely concentrated in the brain and in the muscle tissue. So we'll see motor delays, fine motor delays or gross motor delays. And then we'll see a slowing of the brain, just like, you know, the brain is fatigued essentially. Um, and how so, do you check for all these things? Like, are so, there yeah, you know, what are you doing? 
Again, it differs based on age. Early on, I usually, I don't like to poke kids. We, you know, blood work is helpful. Um, And definitely when we're looking for lead levels or iron levels, vitamin D levels, we have to get some blood. Um, Urine is a great resource. So again, one of my most favorite tests is um, from the company called Great Plains, and they do an organic acid test. Vibrant America also has an organic acid test. There's a number of companies that do. But the organic acid test, it's a urine test. It's easy to collect. um, And it looks at gut. So certain gut imbalances that are very tied to autism, like yeast and clostridia. It looks at mitochondrial function. It looks at neurotransmitter levels. It looks at signs of toxicity. Um, It looks at methylation patterns, which is another thing that we're looking at. So it gives us, I always say like, if a parent could come in and just do like, every parent could get a general screening, I would do an organic acid test because it really does either validate the parents that you're doing a great job. You know, your child is not showing any signs of imbalance here. They're, They're on a good path. Or we start to pick up on these early signs of dysfunction and we can address them you oh, know, yeah. right away. Everyone can do this. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And again, wow. that's a test that you can order on your own. I just, it's pretty, it's kind of a complex one to interpret. So you'll usually, you know, need a practitioner to kind of help you through that um, yeah. interpretation wise. Okay. But like, I just want to touch on this because I feel like, yeah. Look, I've got like friends who have, you know, struggled with some of these like developmental delays with their kids and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my own paranoia, thankfully, I don't, we don't have anything like now, but, yeah. you know, future pregnancies, there could be like concerns, right? So sure. just like you said something earlier that I just really want to like touch on a little bit more. Like, I think there's a feeling of hopelessness, right? When you yeah. are like, okay, I think I have a developmental delay. I really don't think our current pediatricians, like unless they're super advanced and awesome are equipped to even like handle the conversation. I feel like all my friends just like feel like they're just told to like, well, just wait and we'll see if we can have a diagnosis in 18 months. And there's not really anything I can do until like someone diagnoses it. So you're just stuck in this like limbo period. But like you mentioned earlier that, um, you, who cares about the diagnosis? It's great. You have it. You can get some support, but then you you said that like, sometimes you're seeing cases where a lot of the symptoms are disappearing after treatment. So like how treatable is this disease? Yeah. So I would say, you know, what I always, early intervention is key. So 80% of our brain development occurs during the first three years of life. If I have a child who comes in during the first three years of life, I have a lot of hope that we can make such huge improvements um, because the b- brain is still very malleable and it's, it's learning new connections all the time. And so that's why I recommend not only working with a provider who can address the underlying physiological concerns, but someone who can also support them from a therapy standpoint. So speech therapy, occupational therapy, because the brain can learn different connections and learn how to overcome this much quicker with earlier intervention. That does not mean that I have no hope for a child who comes in at eight or 10. It just means that we have to do a lot more to get you know, some less progress. Uh, things are a little bit more solidified as we age. So when, um, so yes, it's very, I would say very treatable. Now it also depends on like, again, how much of this was something that occurred in utero, there are certain factors that are amendable. There are certain factors that are not. So 
while it is helpful for me to gain some of that history, so I kind of know how much progress we are expected to make, I don't spend too much time on things that we can't correct at this point, right? So we're looking for those lab work, that, that those keys in the history where, okay, this is a big change that we can make. You know, we find gut dysbiosis. Everyone can correct gut dysbiosis. We sign toxicity. Everyone can correct toxicity. We find, um, you know, changes in nutrient levels. All of that's amendable. We can't necessarily go back and change the fact that mom used Tylenol in pregnancy or those various factors. So we don't spend too much time on that. We file it away as like, okay, that was a, a risk factor, that contribute a contributing factor. But I would say, you know, there's one of the organizations that I love um, for parents is called TACA Now. Their website is tacanow.org. And I actually am forgetting what the acronym TACA is for, but they are one, just extremely encouraging because they connect parents and um, just are very community oriented, but they also are in like an abundance um, of, they provide an abundance of information and resources for these parents to get connected with providers and with support so that parents are equipped to make these changes. So yes, the pediatrician is not necessarily going to be the main individual in your corner who is correcting, you know, kind of helping us understand what that imbalance, what those imbalances are and how we can support those imbalances. But there are amazing resources around this country. Um, and so tacanow.org would be one organization that I would really point parents into. And then the organization that I'm mainly trained through is called MedMaps and MedMaps.org also has a provider or a clinician directory um, that certain providers are on and you can look in your area and that might be another good resource. Oh, interesting. Parents. Okay. So yeah, because you're going on maternity leave and everyone who listens to this is going to want to call you and work with you. So they, yeah. how long are you going to be on maternity leave? I will be taking new patients back in April, 2022. Yeah. Good for you. Okay. So med, what did you say it was? So org, And then the other organization is called tacanow.org. So T-A-C-A now.org. Um, and both are, you know, great places to get started. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. God, so helpful. And diet wise. So like, I, I feel like there's a lot on like autoimmune paleo protocol or grain free free or like, so where do you like kind of steer families on that one? So it depends. It depends where they're starting from, right? Because I'm not going to prescribe a diet that's unrealistic for them to follow through on. So for some patients, like we know probably the diet that is most used in my field is gluten-free casein-free diet. And for some parents are already doing that (laughs) for others, that is hugely, you know, different than their current diet. So we start by minimizing and then we start by cutting out gluten or casein, just depending on which is easier. Um, ultimately again, like it, there's a number of, I think a whole foods diet is what the goal is with plenty of protein and plenty of fat. If we're looking not even just from an autism, but ADHD, other sorts of behavioral disorders, we need to stabilize the blood sugar. We need to ensure this child is getting nourished and not packed full of empty carbohydrates. I also am a mom of a three and a half year old. I understand that, you know, I might have this ideal diet and that might not be the diet that I can really 
feed her on a day-to-day basis. There might be some objections there and it might not, it might stray from that. So I really encourage parents to, you know, just do as much as they can. Um, and also realize that kids are kids and it's important that we're also exposed to these other things too. So the other part of this is like, I don't just do deal with neurodevelopment disorders. I do a lot with, yeah, I know we have been um, a lot on that. Allergies. Yeah. Yeah. Allergies and eczema and other factors of that sort. And from an allergy perspective, we really want to ensure that our children are exposed to these allergens early on. So we don't want to wait to give them gluten until they're three years of age or wait to give them dairy. We understand that early introduction actually teaches our immune system friend from foe and that we want to have early and frequent introduction of these foods. So our body understands that this is a food. It's not a pathogen. We don't need to attack it. And that prevents allergies in the future. So even though I don't think, you know, gluten is something that we're missing from our diet. Like if we take it out, it's not like we're missing the health benefits of gluten. I still want my daughter and my, you know, next baby to understand their bodies to understand that gluten is not this crazy enemy so that when they go to a birthday party or when they go and they want something at a restaurant, I can feel comfortable knowing that they're not going to react. Got it. So you introduce it. You're saying you don't like put your kid on a strict gluten-free diet. No, I actually recommend allergen introduction. Um, the, the majority of the research is showing actually all of the new research is showing four to six months of age. This is not time to introduce them to like these heavy, they're not eating these foods. We're introducing them to taste. Yeah. So they are tasting these foods so that their immune system can understand that um, this is a food. Yeah. This is not something to react to. Yeah. And eczema, what's up with eczema? I I mean, loaded (laughs) thing. It's, it's hard. It's, it's really difficult. Um, You know, there's a number of different kind of underlying issues that I'm looking at. Gut dysfunction is definitely one of the main things. Um, We have to remember also that it is, um, we, you know, and naturopathic doctors, we want to treat internally, but there's an aspect of this that is a topical portion of it. So it's skin barrier dysfunction. So we're looking at even just the skin of our children is are exposed to different things now than it was earlier in terms of like our laundry detergents and soaps and everything else we're putting on the skin that can destroy that barrier. So, um, that's part of it. Histamine, underlying histamine issue. So histamine is the kind of molecule that's released um, during an allergy. And so if the child has allergies, they might have higher levels of histamine. Histamine levels tend to be higher in eczema, cause a lot of the itchiness. Um, there are things, you know, within our environment that can really increase histamine levels like mold um, and, and a number of other things. So, you know, eczema is it's another complex disorder. It's an immune dysfunction. The immune system is kind of being hyperreactive and um, focusing on that area of the skin. But again, if we kind of just go back to those basic principles and think about um, looking at the gut, looking at supporting skin barrier through nutrients and eliminating the factors that are potentially damaging to the skin, like certain toxins on the skin, but also, I mean, even something as simple as essential oils, can be really um, harmful to very sensitive skin. That's kind of where I start the approach. You know, there's a lot of nuances amongst that. Um, But, you know, it's, it definitely is increasing in prevalence in our, in our children. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, it just seems like it's linked to like 
asthma and I feel like other stuff. It is. So it's on what part of that atopic, we call those atopic conditions. So asthma, eczema, allergies are all like, it's a, we call it like a phenotype. It's a, it's a kind of a genetic expression. Like these children are all linked, you know, that's how their immune system is dysfunction, like more dysfunctional. I always say, and it's not to be like morbid or sad, but like we have all been dealt a bad card. And so, um, and that is just the way that your body will kind of appear when our health is out of balance. And so for me and my family, autoimmunity is huge. So when I am out of balance, my autoimmune marker goes, go up, my autoimmunity flares. That's what happens for other people. It's the atopic, it's the allergies, it's the eczema for other people. You know, it might be cancer, but we've all have this like genetic predisposition that if we are not attending to our health, that's typically what will show up. Interesting. Yeah. Just for like general, I just have a few like, yeah, a few rapid fire kind of questions for the end, but I'm curious, just like, you know, we've touched on a lot of like, you know, autism. I mean, we didn't get into ADD, ADHD, ADHD, yeah. Went away, isn't it now just ADHD or something? Did I read this? Well, no, you can still have it like an inattentive type, not necessarily with hyperactivity. Again, like the diagnostics is, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but I'm, oh, I have one question for you. Pans, yeah. pan, like pans. Yeah. And, oh boy. Yeah. A lot a of that topic. in your practice. I do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, people don't even know what that is. I feel like this is like such a new thing. Yeah. I actually think it's a really important for a thing for parents to be aware of. So pans and pandas is, um, it's an immune system disorder that is characterized by behavioral changes. So it's sudden onset. So a child will develop sudden onset behavioral changes. Um, diagnostic criteria say that they have to either develop OCD or restrictive eating behaviors alongside of these behavioral changes. I'll say that sometimes that's not as clear, like the OCD or the restrictive eating behaviors are not like the primary symptoms. So they go unnoticed by parents and then they don't get diagnosed early enough. So other behavioral symptoms might be, um, you know, all of a sudden the child became ill. Um, and after that illness, they developed, uh, like they were screaming or they were moaning, groaning, they were crying incessantly. They developed separation anxiety. There was a lot of fear. They developed excessive or, um, urination, they developed a tick. Ticks are really common in this population. So it's these behavioral changes that essentially what is happening is that the immune system has now kind of uh, got confused based on that initial trigger and is starting to attack regions of the brain. So it's if you notice ever that your child's behavior seems to have changed overnight, um, and they are, they have a lot more emotional lability, then that is a time to really consider, is this potentially, you know, a pans or a panda? So pandas is linked back to strep, um, which like strep throat, it can also be strep within the gut. So perianal strep. And this is why I highly, you know, I'm not a huge antibiotic pusher, but if a child has strep throat or if they have perianal strep, I treat them right away with antibiotics because I do not want this progressing. Um, PANS is a little bit more broad. It can be associated with viruses, different fungus, mold, candida, other types of toxins, um, other just types of immune dysfunction that's less clear. So it requires a much greater workup. 
Um, and these children, instead of focusing on, you know, all the other things that you would typically do with a behavioral disorder and anxiety disorder, we're looking at how do we support the child's immune system? So what is that underlying cause? Can we treat it? And then how do we support them with anti-inflammatories, immune modulators, and get their immune system back regulated so it's not continuing to create and set in this damage within the brain? And why I think this is important for parents to understand, like to, to really know about is because early prognosis and treatment is key. Um, you know, my children that come into me right away, they, their prognosis is so much better than a child who came into me a year later, two years later, or years later, um, because it's but like in, in pandas with strep, I mean, this is like, I feel like mm-hmm. for me as a paranoid mom, I'm like, oh my God, we just had hand, foot and mouth. And like, then my son yeah, three, uh-huh. and he's like, totally like emotionally different and suddenly like very clingy and he's sure. like, bye. And now he has like massive separation anxiety and like losing his mind. I'm like, oh God, does he have pans? Okay. I mean, h- how do you yeah. like- it's hard. You know, it is hard. It's usually sudden where it's like, no, again, there's arguments about this. So this is not, um, I know it is controversial. The di- Again, it's diagnostic criteria, right? So like if a child doesn't mean meet the diagnostic criteria, do we rule it out that it's not immune mediated? Absolutely not. So, um, not everyone comes in and they say overnight, my child changed like this. Um, usually you have to dig for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, usually not I mean, that how clear, do you, but can you test and like, mm-hmm. you can, I mean, yes and no. So the test that is like more from a diagnostic standpoint, although it's not, but like diagnosis is clinical. So it makes, it's based off of symptoms, yeah. but you could look at something called a Cunningham panel, which looks at antibodies to regions in the brain. And it's a blood test. It's expensive. Um, and that would tell us, you know, does the child have antibodies to certain dopamine receptors or other things that would cause potentially cause these emotional changes. Now, there are still healthy kids that have some antibodies there. So that's where it's like, it can't be used necessarily as it's a more the behavioral stuff. It's the behavioral stuff, but it gives you an idea, you know? So if your child had antibody levels off the charts, then yes, we should probably explore. I mean, hand, foot, and mouth, that's a virus, um, Coxsackie, that is associated with hands. So then we would want to see, you know, is there something that's not allowing him, you know, that's not allowing his immune system to clear this, or does he show other signs of inflammation? Does he get better with anti-inflammatories? That's oftentimes, I mean, sometimes we don't know. I'll put a child on 10 days of ibuprofen and I've seen literally symptoms, all symptoms go away in 10 days of ibuprofen. Then we know, okay, I, I can't find it on lab work. I know that was immune mediated yeah. Even because you were dealing with this for a year and you said all symptoms went away within 10 days on the anti-inflammatory. So now that's a rare occasion that doesn't happen all the time. I wish it did. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, we can see some changes like that where that like sometimes it just we treat and we see how the child responds. Yeah. And then but then what what do you treat? How do you even treat pans and pandas? It's like. Usually it's a combination, you know, we have to identify what's the, like the evoking agent. So if it's a virus, antivirals, if it's a fungus, antifungals, if it's a bacteria, antibacterials, and then um, immunomodulatory things. So things that modulate the immune response. So it's, it is an autoimmune condition. So we're trying to suppress that autoimmunity. So steroids, um, it can be, there's different other things like called IVIG or, you know, other, other more, 
um, invasive and expensive therapies. And then anti-inflammatories are huge. So ibuprofen, naproxen, and then a lot of supplements, like a lot of nutrients I use personally, because they're a lot safer, um, are typically, and then we usually also will combine that sometimes with psychiatric medication if need be. um, And then also therapy. So yeah. it's a, it's a, you know, it's a definitely a combination approach and personally. Go ahead. Oh no, sorry. You were going to say personally. Oh, I was just, you know, I don't, I focus on some other things too. Cause I think about like, okay, collectively outside of their immune system disorder, what are these other potential imbalances that are maybe not the primary cause, but more foundational aspects? Because again, that's where I started behavioral disorders in children, you know, mental health in children. Um, and so I'll look at, you know, what nutrient levels are, and what underlying gut dysbiosis they might have that we can kind of correct, even though it's not going to address the inflammation, the pandas per se, it'll make them more stable um, overall. Yeah. And then does that, um, it does, you can like outgrow it, right? Like, does it kind of can go away in its own? I mean, technically it's a pediatric condition. They do tend to get more mild over time, but there are still adults that are dealing with flares. And so you know, I, it really depends on the severity of the case. Is it rare or do you think this is more common than we realize? I don't know. Um, I mean, it's so hard because I have such a skewed view, right? So like here in California, we have an incredible, I mean, where I'm practicing, I always say like, we're a desert of providers. Like we need more providers because there are so many cases that we cannot take care of. Um, but you know, I don't know because I have not been working with pans and pandas and this for 20 years. So I can't say has this, you know, I don't have that 20 year clinical experience to say, was this occurring this long ago? And we just didn't know what it was. Um, yeah, I hear you. I don't know. I think it's, we're very early in really understanding pans and pandas and, um, we're, yeah, we're in the infancy period. And so, I think it's, it's not like autism where we've been able to track the rate over time. Right. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, this has been fabulous. Yeah. I have one last question for yeah. you. What is something most people don't know about you? This is my favorite question to ask. Oh everyone. my gosh. Um, good question. I think it just depends where you know me from. Um, let's see. Well, okay. I'll tell just an interesting story. So I grew up in a mountain town in West Virginia. So our, you know, entire county went to one high school and our high school was known for slaughtering animals. And so we had a farm on the, on the premises and we really, um, you know, raised our own animals and we were, you know, looking at a blue collar population. So we like a lot, we had a lot of vocational aspects of our high school. So we learned, you know, there was a, like mechanics and um, animal slaughtering and those were classes for us. And so we had a bu- big butcher shop and we sell that meat. We consumed that meat. And so that was just like a little part of like my small town growing up. I think a lot of people don't um, necessarily associate that with me because then I moved to upstate New York and then Boston and now in San Diego. And um, but grew up in a very small farming community. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was like, yeah. super I could talk to you for hours. Why don't you just give everyone uh, like a little tip on where they can follow you and find sure. you? 
Yeah, no, it's so great to talk with you. So um, my um, practice is Kith and Kin Wellness doc, or Kith and Kin Wellness. So you can find me at kithandkinwellness.com. Um, I'm probably most active on my Instagram. So that's at dr. Ari Calhoun, which is spelled A-R-I-C-A-L-H-O-U-N. So those are the two best places to kind of look out and, and reach me. And this has been so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for yeah, inviting me awesome. on. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right.